for the pen of a Balzac. For three days, all these people, these total strangers, meet in a single train whose engine controls their destiny. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are three of my fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Jari Volander is on leave to the Magic Kingdom. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then we test the idea, looking at it from all angles to give authors a deep insight into story structure. This week, Valerie pitched Murder on the Orient Express as a great example of the narrative drive of mystery. This 1974 film, starring pretty much everyone, was directed by Sidney Lumet from a screenplay by Paul Den, based on the 1934 detective novel by Agatha Christie. Interesting side note. The novel was originally published under the title of Murder in the Calais Coach. This much less fascinating title was chosen to avoid confusion with Graham Greene's novel, Orient Express, published two years earlier. Valerie's going to take us through the basic story summary first, then we'll dive into the film with a look at the form of narrative drive known as mystery. And Kim and I will be taking a look at the story through different lenses, sizing up the connections between narrative drive and our particular areas of interest for the season. Okay, so Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, obviously, it's a crime story, it's a murder mystery, and it's the master detective. So it's a pretty easy genre to figure out this week. In the beginning, Hook. When a passenger is killed on the Orient Express, Hercule Poirot must help his friend, who is the director of the train line, by solving the mystery before the police arrive. Or he can stand aside and let the police investigate the matter. Poirot decides to help his friend and he begins his investigation. The middle build is all about the investigation. And when Poirot, Poirot, I have to say his name right, when Poirot discovers that there are too many clues at the scene of the crime, he must interrogate all the passengers of the Calais coach to discover who the murderer is. When the clues do not point to one clear killer, Poirot must conclude that all 12 passengers are culpable. Now, here's an interesting side note. The middle bill doesn't really have much of a crisis, which is kind of strange because that's a big moment in the story. And the reason I'm saying it doesn't have much of a crisis is because we know who Poirot is. We know he is going to solve this mystery. We know he's going to continue to investigate. It's tempting to see the revelation of the murderer as part of the middle build. And, uh, you know, we could probably debate that. But since that's not the topic of today's episode, I'm just going to move on to the ending payoff, which I see as this. When Poirot discovers who done it, he must decide whether he'll give the authorities the simple answer to the crime, which would be that a mystery man boarded the train and then left, or the complex one that all 12 passengers of the Calais coach murdered Ratchet. 
Poirot decides to let the director of the line make the choice and accepts the decision, although in doing so, he must wrestle with his official report and his conscience. Thank you, Valerie. Now, can you tell us about how mystery is employed as narrative drive in the story? Boy, can I. (laughs) Um, I have been all about narrative drive for the last couple of months. So here we go. As a refresher, narrative drive is all about how much information a reader has or an audience member has in relation to the protagonist. Now, there can only be three options here. Mystery is when the protagonist knows more than the reader. Dramatic irony is when the reader knows more than the protagonist. And suspense is when everyone has the same amount of information. Each of these three options elicits a different response from the reader. This is really important. They raise different questions and evoke different emotions. And it's because of these questions and emotions that the reader is compelled to turn the page. She needs answers to those questions and she needs catharsis. Now, before we begin, there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. First, these three forms of narrative drive that I just spoke about do not exist in isolation. A story will probably never be purely mystery, dramatic irony, or suspense, although it can be primarily one or the other. For this podcast, as Leslie said, I've chosen to study Murder on the Orient Express because it primarily uses mystery as the form of narrative drive. In the Fundamental Fridays post I wrote about mystery, I used the pilot episode of the BBC series Sherlock for the same reason. Second, there's no standard definition of these terms. There isn't even a common understanding that these three things make up a technique known as narrative drive. The words, like the story principles themselves, are fluid. In fact, they're often used interchangeably. (laughs) See how this is going to get confusing if you're not paying attention. If you're doing your dishes now, stop and listen, because you'll you'll get lost. (laughs) For example, when Alfred Hitchcock talks about suspense, he's referring to the thing that I call dramatic irony. The definitions that I use are the ones I learned from Sean Coyne, obviously, and Sean learned them from Robert McKee. Now, the thing that you need to remember here, the bottom line, is that when storytellers discuss their craft and what keeps a reader's attention, they're talking about how much information a reader has in relation to the protagonist. So if you're reading a book on the craft of writing or you're listening to an interview from an author talking about his writing process or about the craft of writing... What they're going to be talking about is how much information the protagonist has in relation to the reader. And there's only going to be three options. The reader knows more, the protagonist knows more, or they know the same. What they call those things will vary. And finally, honestly, it's impossible to separate narrative drive from other story principles. It's inherently linked to things like point of view, progressive complications, escalating stakes, exposition as ammunition, pacing, and so on. Anne, Leslie, and Kim and the rest of this podcast are going to take us through a few of them. For now, though, let's take a look at how Agatha Christie handled narrative drive in Murder on the Orient Express. I think this film primarily uses mystery, and the question that sustains the entire story is, who killed Ratchet? It evokes curiosity in the reader. That's what we're paying attention to this story for. We want to know who done it, right? Alfred Hitchcock said that mysteries are intellectual puzzles. And, you know, no surprise, he's right. 
We don't really relate to any of the characters or have empathy with them. By the end of the story, we sympathize with the passengers. We can see why they'd want to kill Ratchet. And we empathize with Poirot because we've all been in situations where, when faced with a crisis, we're not sure whether we should choose the simple answer or the complex answer. But that's only at the very end of the story. Now, that said, while it's primarily mystery, it's not exclusively mystery. In Act One, where we meet the characters, the form of narrative drive here is suspense because we know as much about them as Poirot. Yes, the other passengers know that they intend to murder Ratchet, so they have more information than Poirot and than us. But remember, narrative drive is about how much information the reader has in relation to the protagonist. So it's, it's us and Poirot. That's what we have to look at here. It's not how much information the protagonist has in relation to the other characters. Now, you might want to study that for your particular story, but since studying narrative drive can get, honestly, it can get really confusing really quickly. My advice, at least until you have a really firm handle of narrative drive, is to just stick with the reader and the protagonist. You Trust me, try doing a narrative drive analysis and you'll see what I mean <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> All right. In Act 2, this is when Poirot reviews the clues and interrogates the suspects. So immediately it's clear that he knows way more than we do. For example, he knows that there are too many clues in the room. I wouldn't know that. He knows that Ratchet's real name is Cassetti. He knows that every single passenger is lying to him. Now, I want to just throw in a quick note about the prologue. It's tempting to think that the prologue creates dramatic irony. And, and sometimes it does, because when we looked at Get Out, we did start out in a sense of dramatic irony because we saw stuff that nobody else saw. But that's not the case in this film. Here, the purpose of that clip of seeing the whole Daisy Armstrong story unfold is to give the audience the same amount of information that Poirot already has. So that later, when we see that piece of paper with the letters A-I-S-Y-A-R-M-S on it, and when Poirot draws the conclusion that that's Daisy Armstrong, it makes sense to us and it seems logical. With Master Detective Mysteries, it's really important that we, as the writer, not let our Master Detective get too far ahead of the audience. If we do, they'll get lost. Conclusions that the detective comes to will seem unreal, like there's no possible way he could have known it. This is one of the problems, one of the many, 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 many problems that the Kenneth Branagh version of this story had, and why I didn't make anyone watch it for this episode. <laughs> when Brana's Poirot exclaims that Ratchet is really Cassetti, it comes out of nowhere. And it's, it's just weird. You're sitting there saying, how could he possibly know that? And unless you'd read the book, it makes no sense. All right, moving on to act three. Poirot reveals who the murderer is. This is, the whole act is one long scene and it moves, the narrative drive switches from mystery to suspense. He knows who done it, but we don't. That's the mystery part. The narrative drive moves into suspense once Poirot lets the director of the train decide whether to let the 12 go or turn them into the police. Now, in saying that, 
really, it's not all that suspenseful because we kind of know what he's going to do. When he decides that he's going to let them go, it, it isn't that much of a surprise. Okay. Part of what I've been doing the last few months as I've been studying narrative drive is come up with a way to sort of codify what the narrative drive is in a novel. So to spreadsheet it, because that's I'm now completely brainwashed. I have to spreadsheet everything. (laughs) Um, And actually, you can do it. So what I want to do right now is just walk you through the process that I've come up with. Now, it may change as I continue my study, but right now it's it's working. It's working well. So I want to walk you through my process so that if you're curious about the narrative drive in your own story, you can then take this and analyze what you've got. A word to the wise. This is something that you want to do once you know that your book is already working. It's definitely something to be done during the editing phase of writing your book, not the writing phase. So once you've gone through the all the normal story grid process of evaluating your manuscript to make sure it works, then you can go in and have a look at the narrative drive. Right now, my spreadsheet has eight columns. The first one is for the scene number. The second one is the scene description. And then I have six columns for six questions that I use to evaluate narrative drive. And the questions are these. What form of narrative drive is used in the scene? What information is being given in the scene? How are the stakes raised or the plot complicated? What emotions are evoked in the reader? What questions are being raised in the reader's mind? And when are those questions answered? Valerie, this brings my 34-column giant novel spreadsheet up to 40 columns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we, we just can totally nerd well, out on It can on be all a mile wide. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let me uh, illustrate this for you using one of the scenes from Murder on the Orient Express. And I chose the discovery of the dead body scene. An interesting note. This is the inciting incident of the story, right? But it happens 38 minutes in. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, which again is a whole separate podcast, but not to worry. It's Agatha Christie. She knows what she's doing. All right. The first question, what form of narrative drive is used in the scene? Well, I think it's suspense because at this point, Poirot doesn't know any more than we do. He's discovered a dead body. What information is being given? Ratchet was drugged and then stabbed. Bianchi, who's the director of the train line, has a weak stomach. He can't stand the sight of blood or a dead body. I can't blame him. Uh, We're also told that the time of death is sometime between midnight and 2 a.m. How are the stakes raised or the plot complicated? Well, as I said, this is the inciting incident. So even though it's late in the story, it establishes the stakes and it kicks off the entire plot. What emotions are evoked in the viewer or the reader? It's curiosity. Plain and simple. And because this is a mystery, we're solving an intellectual puzzle. So we're going to be in the realm of the intellect throughout the whole story. What questions are being raised in the viewer's mind? Well, we're wondering who stabbed Ratchet and why? Why was it 12 times? Who drugged him and why? When are these questions answered? Christie doesn't answer any of these questions for us until the very ending payoff 
when Poirot confronts the 12 passengers. And he goes on at length as he talks to each one of the 12 suspects and explains why they could have done it, why they may not have done it. So the even the revelation, even answering these questions is dragged out. And she teases us along through the whole ending payoff. It's wonderful. I mean, there's a look, there's a reason why we're still reading her books, you know, nearly 100 years later. So when you analyze a story, the narrative drive in your story or in your scene, what you're actually doing is trying to figure out how information is being doled out to the reader. Because remember, the reader is on a need-to-know basis. And this speaks to the thing that Sean talks about all the time, which is exposition as ammunition. We tend to default, especially when we're early, we're new writers and it's early in our career, we default to having long passages of exposition or information dumps. Uh, And in my Fundamental Fridays post, I mentioned that J.K. Rowling in the very first chapter of Harry Potter, she rewrote that 15 times because her first draft actually gave away the whole Horcrux plot. Imagine, and it took her seven novels to to parcel that out. Did you just make a parcel tongue joke? (laughs) Oh, I did! I did! I'm so punny! Okay, now I'm now I'm thinking of puns. Okay, focus, Valerie. You're professional. All right. So as a result of the information, what questions is the reader asking herself about the story as she reads? Because when we have these questions in our mind as readers, we keep reading to find out what the answer is. Also, how is the reader reacting emotionally or intellectually to your story? If we are emotionally engaged with the protagonist, we're going to keep tuning in, keep turning the page to see what happens. And we could really see this with the King's speech when we studied it. We really want to know what's happening to Bertie and and how he's going to get through this. So we are compelled to move on. So that's just one example of how to analyze the narrative drive in a scene. If you want more examples, check out the Fundamental Fridays post I did. Uh, It's called How to Write a Page Turner, and I will or writing a page turn or something like that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes anyway. In there, I analyzed three scenes from the pilot episode of the BBC series Sherlock, A Study in Pink. For now, though, I'm going to turn it back to Leslie and the others and hear what they have to say about it. Thanks so much, Valerie. That was a great exploration of narrative drive and mystery in this story. So now let's hear from Kim on progressive complications and stakes, and then Anne on multi-stranded, multi-character stories. So since Murder on the Orient Express has little to no internal genre for me to study, Valerie asked me to take a look at progressive complications and stakes and how they tie into narrative drive, which I eagerly accepted. But after I watched the movie and I made my scene list, I went to pull my notes together and I realized I didn't have a clear enough understanding of how these elements are connected to make any helpful observations or draw any helpful conclusions. So whenever I'm attempting to understand something at the fundamental level, my brain has to take a giant step back and then walk step by step forward in this kind of weird computer Cody, if this, then this kind of thing it likes to do, which creates this mental model I can finally begin to follow. In this case... It goes something like this. Question. What is narrative drive? Answer. It is what makes the reader want to keep reading, what drives them to the climax. Question. 
what makes us want to keep reading? Answer, when we're interested in what happens, aka the opposite of bored. Great. So question, how do we create interest? And answer, thankfully, Robert McKee helps us pinpoint this answer in his book Story by engaging the audience either intellectually or emotionally. Okay, so how do we engage the audience intellectually? Answer, by creating curiosity. Okay, how do we create curiosity? By withholding information. So how do we engage the audience emotionally? By creating concern. And how do we do that? By providing information. So we can see that curiosity and concern, also known as interest, are evoked by the amount of information the audience has at any given time. When the audience has less information than the characters, that's mystery, and they experience curiosity. Hmm, I wonder what they know that I don't. When the audience has more information than the characters, dramatic irony, they experience concern because they can see what's coming and the characters can't. When the audience has the same amount of information as the character, suspense, we experience both curiosity and concern. So, whew, I finally have my mental model in place. So today, we're discussing the driving force of mystery. That is, when the audience has less information than the characters. Here's a quote from Robert McKee. Mystery means gaining interest through curiosity alone. We create but then conceal expositional facts, particularly facts in the backstory. We arouse the audience's curiosity about these past events, tease it with hints of the truth, then deliberately keep it in the dark by misleading it with red herrings so that it believes or suspects false facts while we hide the real facts. Great, this paragraph becomes our checklist for creating mystery. Create, then conceal expositional facts, particularly about the backstory. Arouse the audience's curiosity about these past events. Tease them with hints. Then deliberately keep them in the dark with misleading red herrings. Ta-da! Now they believe and suspect false facts while we hide the real facts. So let's look at this in terms of progressive complications and stakes with Murder on the Orient Express. So in the prologue, We have a little girl of a wealthy family who is kidnapped. Many members of the household are helpless to stop it. One is even accused of being involved. The parents of the little girl pay the ransom, but then the little girl is found slain. And it's a total gut wrench. So here are my observations. This prologue provides us information and we feel concern. It establishes stakes, injustice, and death. So we understand clearly what kind of story we are in and what is possible later, meaning the risk of death is on the table. Communicating this is crucial for any story you write. Beginnings are the place to establish multiple aspects of the genre, reality, such as the setting, style, such as the prose, and content, such as the life values. This is not an exhaustive list, but you get the idea. So don't be afraid to show us what is at stake up front. Then, when things progressively complicate, we have clearer context to understand what that means and why we should care, which is, remember, being interested so that we keep reading. Okay, so then in the story, we jump to five years later without any additional information. We're introduced to a variety of characters, one of which is Colonel Arbuthnot, which sounds like Arbuthnot, which is a name my eight-year-old would think is hysterical. All the while, guessing at what their connection could be, if any, to the tragic events in the prologue. When we meet our master detective, Hercules Poirot, I'm sorry, Valerie, I'm not as good at the French thing. I did Spanish instead. We form our initial impression, which for me was that he's a little bit silly, but is a renowned detective who has just completed this high profile case and has now been called to London. 
As the train pulls away from the station, quite dramatically, by the way, we have a certain amount of information provided just based on the characters who've been introduced and their odd demeanors. And because we know death is possible, we can't help but wonder if they are connected to the previous or some future murder. The title of the story is, of course, The Murder on the Orient Express. So it's just a matter of time before things go down. And how's that for some dramatic irony? So our detective seems to overhear and notice these moments, too, these odd goings-ons with the other characters. But he plays it off coyly, so we get the impression that much of his demeanor is somewhat of a shtick. He disarms others, which allows him to gain access to the information he needs, but of course, he keeps it all a mystery. It's an interesting exercise to pause and walk through what we know at any given point in the story. So in the prologue, up to leaving the station, which feels just like the setup, it's, you know, we know of the initial crime, we know the current cast of characters, sort of, and... We know the fairly confusing circumstances surrounding Perot's sleeping arrangements, and we know that the journey is to take three days. When we leave the station to discovering the body, which is, you know, how the murder takes place, we know that Mr. Ratchet is a jerk. We know that he's being threatened, and we know that there are circumstances on the night of the murder after Perot's odd and highly amusing bedtime routine. There are several odd things that happen in the night. And then in the morning, we know that the door is locked from the inside with the chain. So then the next little section is the beginning of the investigation to completing the investigation. And here we have all kinds of revelations and complications that arise during questioning the passengers. We have additional clues and evidence that come up. We have the, you know, the button. We have the uniform that's found, the dressing gown that's found, the dagger, you know, just to name a few. Then the final section, you know, disclosing the solution. This is when he solves the crime. And this is when Poirot finally enlightens us and walks us through the two possible solutions. Number one, it's anonymous mafia guy who escaped the train um, at the snowdrift. Or number two, that all 12 of them are co-conspirators to the murder because of their connection to the Armstrong case, which he then details one by one. In the end, he allows the simpler solution number one to be provided to the police rather than what he knows to be true. This is a very interesting turn of events, and there's something very specific I want to point out that I think allows it to work. After Poirot uncovers the part of that hidden message from the burned paper, that AZ arms, he tells us the rest of the story about the people from the prologue case. There were two criminals involved. The actual murderer was tried, sentenced, electrocuted, but Cassetti, who was the second and bigger boss, got the ransom money and then got away, which is, of course, a total injustice. And an interesting note, this is a great setup for the fact that there is more than one murderer in that original prologue case. It's introducing that that is a possibility and also, I think, sets up this surprising yet inevitable conclusion. Then, of course, Daisy is found slain. Mrs. Armstrong, her mother, gives birth to a stillborn baby and dies, again, all because of the shock of everything. Mr. Armstrong, the father, goes on to shoot himself, and the maid who was falsely accused, she jumps out of a window to her death. So at this point, we understand that Cassetti is responsible for five deaths, which is an even bigger injustice. Now, Pierre, the train attendant, He has a wife who died of grief because their daughter, as he says, died of scarlet 
fever. But later we'll learn that Pierre was actually the father of Paulette, um, who was the maid who had jumped out of the window. And so his wife died from the grief of their daughter's death, which again, here brings Cassetti's death toll even higher, which is an even, even bigger injustice. So continuing to build these stakes of injustice from that Daisy Armstrong case that's shown in the prologue is really, really important for the ending. If Poirot is going to make the decision that he makes, letting the real murderers go free by choosing that simpler solution number one, the audience has to understand what is truly at stake. In this case, that the 12, the 12 affected in that original prologue case, they act as a jury and to them, they delivered true justice or poetic justice. As I went through my scene list and notes, it was easy to see each and every moment of progression and establishing of the stakes, something that I am really hoping will be equally as clear to me when we study those global internal genre films. In the case of today's film, we experience progressive complications and progressive revelations. In the context of a crime story, this has a valence aspect to it. As though the complications move us away from the truth and therefore away from justice, and the revelations move us toward it. The detective will find clues, revelation, but in this case, there's too many clues, a complication. That leads to possible suspects, revelation, that are then ruled out, complication. And because we understand the stakes, the life values, in this case, justice, these negative complications and positive revelations have a greater impact. We need to know what we're trying to achieve. Another interesting element in the story is the snowdrift complication. It's this external kind of thing. It forces them to a halt, uh, but then help is on the way, but, and then help arrives. So this is a clock element that progressively complicates things and raises the stakes for Poirot. If he doesn't solve the case by the time they reach their destination, the murderer could go free and justice would not be served. This could also affect his reputation as a renowned detective, which you know has a slight performance aspect to it. All of this seems to point back to that fundamental principle to know, meaning choose, your genre. Specific genre choices lead to these specific limitations, the life values at stake, and the core emotion. Knowing these will explicitly influence how you want to tell the story to create narrative drive, which, remember, is creating interest through intellectual and emotional engagement, meaning creating curiosity and concern by withholding and providing information at intentional times throughout the narrative. Knowing that core emotion of the genre, which is the experience the audience is truly seeking, can inform the tactic you use. Mystery, where we want to withhold information to create curiosity, where we know less information than the characters, dramatic irony, where we want to provide information to create concern because we know more than the characters, and suspense, where we provide some but not all of the information so that we have the same amount of information as the characters. See? Easy, right? Yeah, totally easy. <laughs> that was absolutely <laughs> brilliant, Kim. I just, I'm learning so much just listening to this. It's fantastic. I have to admit here that I'm studying complex story forms this season, that is to say nested stories, nonlinear narrative, and multiple stranded stories that intertwine. So what I'm about to add to the discussion kind of veers off in a little bit different direction, but I'll just go ahead with it because that's what I do. I was interested in this movie because I remembered it. I'm the one in this room old enough to have seen it when it was new. Um, I remembered it as a mini plot structure, that is 
that it had stories of multiple characters woven together in a single overarching plot. Now, watching it again, I don't think it really qualifies as a mini plot because the individual characters barely have stories of their own. But it's an example of a type of story that was popular in the 1970s, and it still seems like a lot of fun and it's worth looking at. Other examples of this type of story are the classic 70s disaster movies like Airport and The Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. And then there were parodies of those like Airplane, exclamation point, which were built around multiple characters, each with their own stories brought together by the disaster. And it carried on again, even up to as recently as the early aughts, when Lost, the TV series, used the same technique in its opening episodes to establish all these various characters coming together in this airline crash disaster on the island. And then also a couple of really ripping narrative nonfiction books I've read in the last couple of years made great use of this same multi-strand story weaving method. So I think it's an interesting tool for people writing narrative nonfiction. One of them was The Big Burn, Teddy Roosevelt and the Fire That Saved America by Timothy Egan, which was about the massive Western wildfire of 1910. Really a good book. And another was Eruption, The Untold Story of Mount St. Helens by Steve Olson. And I'll link to both of those in this show notes. Now, what these narrative nonfiction uh, stories and good old disaster movies have in common is the way they set up a series of characters, fictional in one case, and then in the other case, historically documented people who would have no relation to each other except for the coming disaster. We meet the individuals generally, and this is really an important point, they generally represent a range of social classes and backgrounds. And we develop some sympathy, empathy, or antipathy towards them, depending on how they're presented. So although Valerie validly points out that in Murder on the Orient Express, we don't really get into these characters very much, we do see enough of them to start to judge them a little bit and get a feeling for them. So a certain tiny degree of dramatic irony is operating in most of these cases because we, as the readers or viewers, already know that these stories are about a massive wildfire, a volcanic eruption, or a capsized ocean liner, or in this case, murder on the Orient Express. And just as a side note, I want to say that that title is almost as good at telling you all about the story as Snakes on a Plane, <laughs> which I think is one of the great titles for a bad movie of all time. So we know that each character we meet is going to be involved somehow, though the characters themselves don't know it yet, right? This is the, that Hitchcock definition of suspense, which Valerie is defining as dramatic irony, where we're eagerly waiting to find out who's going to live, who's going to be a hero, who's going to die, and so on. We may suspect one person who kind of seems villainous and turns out to be innocent or even a hero, and that one very dignified person like the matron who turns out to be the arsonist or the cynical loser who redeems herself by saving the child in the end. We, we, certain expectations are set up and we're watching for them. Now here in Murder on the Orient Express, and forgive me, I'm going to call the characters by their actor names because I didn't log all the character names. The Vanessa Redgrave and Sean Connery characters are made sympathetic a little bit with a hint at a love affair. They're lovers and they're beautiful. And we feel uh, something for the John Gilgood character because his dignity is so far above the this coarse, rude, rich man who actually is a terrible murderer that he has to wait on. 
And then when that same rude boss deprives the Anthony Perkins character of his dinner, we feel for him. Even though in 1974, we were still real keenly aware of Anthony Perkins as the guy from Psycho. And so we naturally suspect him of being the murderer. This is something that a movie can do that you can't do with a book. The actor playing him is known to be a psycho murderer, right? The Ingrid Bergman character is frightened and out of place and dressed so much worse than everybody else. And she's humble. And so we, we have a sense of pity for her. So just like the true life and fictional characters in disaster stories, here we have a wide array of social classes, from everything from a real princess to the humble missionary, which is the Ingrid Bergman character, and then from the sophisticated count and countess to the American car salesman, and then several members of the service class, a butler, um, the train attendant, the lady's maid, and so forth. I think the disparate types of people are an important element in this because we naturally wonder what would bring them all together, especially in a fairly exclusive environment like the Orient Express, which is really a cool train. That's a little bit of mystery underlying the big overarching murder mystery. What brings a beautiful, young, aristocratic couple swathed in furs and silks and just sashaying down the train aisle together with this loudly dressed talent agent and this car salesman with gold teeth? So one reason is the aforementioned sympathy, empathy, and antipathy. Presenting the reader or viewer with diversity, at least in this case, a diversity of social status, gives the writer a chance to explore the overarching story from all these different points of view. So whether you're telling a murder mystery or something else, using multiple characters like this, if you make sure they're all very different, they offer you the opportunity to show various perspectives so that when the adversity, the disaster, or in this case, their caper to kill the the murderer, when that unifies them, their their unity that they finally do unify and come together feels even more moving and powerful than it would if they were all, you know, exactly on the same team or from exactly the same walks of life, right? The closing scene of Murder on the Orient Express shows all these people from all these different walks of life sharing this moment of profound emotion and understanding. They solemnly sort of drink their champagne toast and we get a chance to see them all in review and remember that they all came together for this dire but noble purpose. It's kind of a strange irony there. And they succeeded and they will probably never meet again. It was surprisingly moving at the end of what was basically a very light movie. So my takeaway as a writer is that multi-stranded or multi-character stories like this might work better if the cast of characters is clearly diverse by some measure of diverse diversity, because the diversity can stand in for a certain amount of backstory or internal arc and help create reader empathy, engagement, and suspense. Wow, thank you. These points of view or perspectives are really, really useful, I think. And I'm going to look at a couple of things, point of view in particular, but a couple of topics that arose from this story and also narrative drive. And the first thing I want to talk about is point of view and narrative drive. And the intersection of these two topics relates to the information available to the reader or viewer that comes through the narrator of the story. So Murder on the Orient Express is presented largely in what Norman Friedman would call dramatic mode. Now I'm talking about the film here, not the book. Dramatic mode limits the reader 
or viewer's information to what the characters do or say. This is a subset of third-person narration, but it's as if we're watching a play rather than hearing internal thoughts, feeling the visceral experience and emotions of the characters, which we know you can do when you have a novel. Now, there's no overt narrator providing information here, with the exceptions of the shots of the newspaper headlines, along with the dates that indicate that the present time of our story is five years after the kidnap and murder of Daisy Armstrong. I wanted to see how the point of view choice in the book might be different, so I read the opening chapter And it's very similar, but we get some commentary from a covert, that is, unidentified narrator related to what the characters say or do. Norman Friedman would call this neutral omniscience, which could allow the reader access to the internal experience of the character, but the writer can choose not to share that information, especially in a mystery like this. So when you choose and evaluate your point of view choices in your story and your narrative circumstances or device, you should consider how these choices work with your narrative drive choices. Point of view has to do with the sources of information available to the narrator based on who the narrator is, where they are in time and space relative to the story, and why they're telling the story. Now, there's a lot of more information about this available in the two articles I wrote on point of view and perspective, and I'll include those links in the show notes. Narrative drive, of course, as Valerie has explained, relates to the information revealed to the reader compared to what the protagonist knows. So what does that mean in the context of a master detective crime story? When so many characters know the solution to the puzzle presented by the story, revealing their thoughts would be extremely tricky while maintaining a sense of of fair play. More on fair play in a moment, but you can see how this would be a problem. Editorial omniscience or any other point of view that could give us access to the criminal's thoughts would usually be a bad choice in these stories. Although Christie took on this challenge in the murder of Roger Ackroyd. So if this appeals to you, you will want to check that out. Now, you could tell the same story from the detective's point of view in a close third point of view or first person. You could share their internal experience, thoughts, and emotions. And that happens in the Flavia Deleuze series by Alan Bradley. But there we have an amateur detective. When you have a master detective like Poirot, Generally, you want to withhold his preliminary hunches and conclusions that would reveal the solution to the puzzle too soon. Okay, so that's enough on point of view for now. I also want to talk about innovating conventions because I'm studying conventions this season, though my focus is in the action subgenres. This film presents a really interesting example of innovating genre and category conventions. You can see the show notes for my list of these for the film. 
The conventions of the content genre are promises the writer makes to the reader that set up the story and are delivered on by the obligatory scenes. Now, Agatha Christie wrote enough crime stories that she seemed to develop her own conventions beyond those of the genre, crime, and subgenre, where she wrote cozy murder mysteries or murder mysteries with master detectives. Now, until Murder on the Orient Express was published, her detectives had always revealed one murderer, and readers came to expect that as a convention of her stories. Some fans cried foul at the time, claiming that Christie wasn't playing fair in Murder on the Orient Express because readers believed that one Christie-specific convention was the detective unveiling a single culprit who was then brought to justice. Now, I would say instead that she was innovating her style of story and used the reader's expectations as red herrings in themselves that she then paid off in a satisfying way. Okay, the last point on this story that I want to make is about antagonists, villains, and criminals. And we often say that the key to writing a good villain is to understand that they are the hero of their own story and that they have a point. Now, I wholeheartedly agree, but I would take this a step further. It's really useful to figure out what that story is. For example, in Murder on the Orient Express, if you were to view the story from Mrs. Hubbard's perspective, that is, Daisy Armstrong's grandmother, you could view it as a caper without the comic elements. And find all those conventions and obligatory scenes explicitly or implicitly included. You can see our discussions in Mad Money and Waking Ned Divine for those conventions and obligatory scenes of capers. Capers explore crime from the criminal's perspective and what drives ordinary people to commit those crimes, as well as our own notions of justice. Now, in a complicated story like this one, with lots of suspects, clues, and red herrings, plus fair play with the reader being critical, you might want to take the time to identify the story and genre from the antagonist's point of view and let that play out. That insight about the Mrs. Hubbard story revealing a caper is just brilliant. I didn't catch that when I was watching the movie, and it really resonates with me. The the humor is definitely missing from that story uh, that is a common element of a caper. But wow, that really clarifies why, in the end, we don't really blame any of them for doing what they did. It is a story about poetic justice. That's a fantastic insight. Thank you. Okay, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from Bruce Boyer on Twitter. Bruce asks, the crisis of a scene is a perfect time to go to the next chapter, a great cliffhanger. Why wait for the climax and resolution? In other words, why not cut the scene right there with a question? And Kim is going to answer that today. Thanks, Bruce. And you're right, a turning point in crisis can be a perfect time to break a chapter. But beware on overplaying that card. As Robert McKee says, repetitiousness is the enemy of rhythm. 
Just a quick clarity for everyone. So we have a scene, and it's a small but complete unit of story that has a clear turning point where the life value shifts either positively to negatively, negatively to positively, or perhaps bad to worse, or good to great. A chapter is a break in the narration, but this is an artistic choice that assists narrative drive. So breaking at the turning point or the crisis can be a great tool, and it's one that is a good fit for certain genres, such as action or crime or thriller, and even though it certainly could be used in all of the others. But you want to be selective with when, where, and how you do this so that you don't, in fact, have the opposite effect that you're going for by making it repetitious. As we can see with Murder on the Orient Express, narrative drive does not rely on artificial breaks in chapters, but on engaging the reader intellectually and emotionally by providing and withholding information that creates curiosity and concern. So certainly you can do it, but just beware of overplaying that. I would also just add that in overplaying it, even in a really high level action story, maybe especially in that type of story, it's very tiring for the reader. Instead of turning the page again and again after a while, when every chapter ends on a cliffhanger, they're going to put the book down and take a rest. The other thing that I just was thinking about is that the power of the resolution of a scene. And we talk about that in our Story Grid 101 episode about the Five Commandments and about Coco. And Anne, you talked about resolution scenes, and they really help us feel that kind of the fine, the final the finality, I guess, of the value shift that occurred. And it can also introduce additional complications. So in that way, the resolution of a scene can also feel like its own sort of cliffhanger because it's setting up what's to come next. And so I think that you can still get that kind of feeling of drive without having to cut your scenes in half all the time. Right. And the chapter division, as you point out, is a sort of a physical almost construction of the written novel and doesn't exist in places like movies. Right. It's really interesting to look at them all and realize that they are inherently different things. And you honestly don't even have to decide your chapters until your whole book is done, right? And that can be something you come back through at the end and decide where you want to break them. Excellent points. Thanks, Kim and Anne. And thanks for the question, Bruce. So if you have a question about narrative drive or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources and clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast to leave us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Anne, Kim, and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into Murder on the Orient Express. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to use narrative drive, especially mystery, to write a better story. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you're interested in hiring a StoryGrid certified editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time to find out how the Shawshank Redemption demonstrates Jari's subject of study this season, how set and setting drive great dialogue. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Half a warm beer for everybody. Back to work. Back to work. (laughs) Back to work. Yes.